Go ahead and find uh, Matthew chapter 8. We'll be there in a little bit. Matthew chapter 8. This uh, past summer, uh, I was preaching on a Sunday in Beaumont, and in the back uh, left of the auditorium, there's a window that faces like a, um, a field, and halfway through my sermon on that morning, I looked out and there was a deer standing right next to the window, sort of grazing, and only I could see it because everyone was facing toward me, and it was really beautiful and amazing, and I realized I can't tell anyone about this, not in my sermon, to just, you know, it'll stop the whole momentum of the sermon, because that's an important thing to keep that up. And that relates to something that happened this morning. There were no uh, deer spotted, but uh, halfway through my introduction this morning, I realized I didn't say anything about Q&A night. I normally like to tease that and say something about it, and I just forgot to. And I said, well, I'm not going to stop the momentum of my sermon, so we're just going to plow ahead. So, uh, some of you guessed correctly, it was Q&A night. I have two questions I want to get through, and uh, let's, uh, let's jump into it. Number one, where did the name Bible come from? Who named it the Bible? Uh, this question actually comes from one of our children's Bible classes, uh, but it is definitely not a childish question. Are you aware that the word Bible does not appear in the Bible? In your English translation, you will not find the word Bible anywhere except on the front cover, which is not actually the content. So to put it another way, to be a little bit uh, cheeky, uh, the word Bible is unbiblical. How about that? The Bible never refers to itself as the Bible. It refers to itself as the scriptures, sometimes as just scripture, the holy scriptures, or the sacred writings. All these are ways in which the Bible refers to its own content, but the Bible never calls itself the Bible. So the question is, why do we call it the Bible? So our word Bible comes from the Greek word Biblia, and the word Biblia simply means books. Um, Now, I was a bit misleading when I said the word Bible does not appear in the Bible. Um, It's technically not true. Uh, It's true in our English translations, but for example, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 13 Paul makes this request of Timothy. He says, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus and Troas and also the books. The word there is the Biblia and above all the parchments. Now, he's not talking there about a leather-bound copy of the Bible. Paul's in the middle of contributing to that Bible. Um, Biblia is just the Greek word for books. So how did our Bible start being called by that name, Biblia? It seems, as far as I can tell in the little research I was able to do, uh, beginning in the 5th century, the Greek um, church fathers, sometimes they're called, the sort of early writers in that time and place, they began to apply the term Biblia to refer to the whole Christian scriptures. Um, They often used the definite article in front of it, not just Biblia, but ta Biblia, or not just books, but the books. Now, please note, Biblia is a plural form of the word. Not book, but books was the original name. The books. And I think that's a good reminder that while we hold in our hand a single bound volume, um, the Bible is actually made up of 66 different individual books. Um, The Bible really isn't just a book, it's a whole library containing a lot of diverse volumes, 
with wildly different genres. There's wildly different content within the pages of your Bible. Uh, the Greeks would also apply uh, several adjectives in front of ta biblia. They would call it things like not just the books, but the divine books or the canonical books or the holy books. Sometime later, uh, in the Latin-speaking world, the books became just the book, singular. The word became singular, and it has been used that way ever since. The book, the Bible. And I think that's also sort of a, a little lesson as well. The singularization of the word is a good reminder that behind these many books lies a singular entity, a wonderful unity. Yes, there are many different books composed by many different human authors over the course of centuries, but those books tell one cohesive story and they all share the same ultimate author. And so one, uh, one uh, article I read which described the development of the Bible and the use of the word, he put it this way, the subsequent use of the singular, the Bible, for the whole corpus of writings reflects the Christian conviction that this collection of books is not merely an anthology of assorted writings whose authors speak reliably for God, but one comprehensively unified divine utterance. And so to call it the Bible is to make some sort of a statement. Yes, books, but also book, the book, the word of God. Or as Paul said it, not using the word Bible, of course, but instead using the word scripture, he said all scripture, notice the singular form of the word, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. So, the short answer to the question, <clears throat> we call it the Bible because it is a book. Because it is a collection of books, but also it is a book as well. Second question. <clears throat> in Matthew 8... Why did the demons ask Jesus to send them into the herd of swine just to run off the cliff? So let's just start in the text the question references. This is Matthew 8 and verse 28. We'll read Matthew's account and then begin talking about it. Matthew 8 and verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. It is an odd story. Um, I think all the, the demon stories in the Gospels are odd stories. They're, they're probably foreign to our experience. They involve a part of the spiritual realm we just don't have much information about. Um, the question basically asks, why do demons act the way they do? And my initial reaction to that question is, I have no idea why demons do anything that they do. Um, how are demons supposed to act? I don't really know the answer to that question. Uh, but we'll do the best we can. So, 
the first thing I'm going to do in answer to this question is to take a right turn, literally in your Bible. Um, this story is told in all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, Mark and Luke's accounts are both longer and contain more detail than Matthew's. Um, they give us pretty much everything Matthew gives us, plus a bit more. So what I want to do is to concentrate mainly on Mark's account. I'll be pulling from Luke here and there, but Mark's going to be sort of where we plant our flag. Mark chapter 5 is where this story appears in Mark's gospel. So I hope it's okay for the person asking the question that I look at a parallel account of it. What I want to do is to talk through the story. Um, Verses 1 through 13 contain the story we just read a shorter version of in Matthew. And then I will sort of take a stab at the question and and, uh, rummage around and see what we can discover. And then we'll briefly hit on the aftermath of the story, which I find to be almost as interesting as, as the story of the exorcism itself. So verses 1 through 13 in Mark, Mark 5, contain the, the miracle story itself, verses 14 through 20, the aftermath of it. So we'll just talk through a, a verse or two at a time. Verse 1, Mark one, 5 and verse 1. They came to the other side of the lake, to the country of the Gerasenes, or the Gadarenes. So they reach here the other side of the sea. Um, under normal circumstances, the trip across uh, would take about two hours, I'm told, um, but this is much shorter here in verse 1. And the trip, that when they arrive there, it will not be a normal trip by any means. So they arrive in the country of the Gerasenes, also called the Gadarenes, which is on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, near modern-day, the modern-day town of Kursa, along the shore of the sea in this region, there are a number of taverns there in the hillside, which were used as tombs. And this is probably the area where the man in verse 2 is coming out of. So this is verse 2. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. So Mark introduces us to a man with an unclean spirit in quite a bit of detail. Now just one brief thing. Matthew actually talks about two demon-possessed men. Mark Mark and Luke seem to focus on one in particular. But the residents of the area had had attempted to bind him with chains to protect themselves from him, to protect uh, him from attacking them and perhaps also to help protect this man from himself, because who knows what he might do. We're told that no chains were strong enough to hold him, and so he had ended up being driven off to sort of wander in the hill country and to live in the caves and caverns, which were typically used as tombs. But at any hour, day or night, he could be seen shrieking and heard shrieking and cutting himself with sharp stones. So it's really a serious serious and disturbing situation this man is in. Verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So back in verse 2, there was a simple statement. There met, uh, met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. What happens in verse 6 is now that is fleshed out. Exactly what does that mean? This man has an unclean spirit. The man had seen Jesus from a distance. He then fell down on his knees in front of Jesus 
and the man, it's really, I think, the demon speaking through the man. Um, the cry in verse 7 seems, seems quite desperate. What have you to do with me, Jesus son, uh, Jesus, son of the Most High God? What have you to do with me? And one sort of paraphrase at this takes, takes that question this way. Um, something like, mind your own business. What do you have to do with me? Don't bother me, sort of thing. Now, one funny thing in the Gospel of Mark in particular is that the demons are always saying the right things about Jesus, and no one else is. The apostles don't quite get it, at least in the first half of the Gospels, and the crowds are saying all these things about him, and the scribes and Pharisees are saying things about him, and they're all wrong. And the demons are saying things like, you're, you're the son of God. And that's what he says here, Jesus, son of the most high God. Now, I don't believe he's making like a conversion in the good confession or anything like that. Fitting with his sort of thread, his mind your own business comment, it's sort of a defensive statement. I don't know a whole lot about this, but uh, there are people that have talked about that in sort of the pagan religion, that um, if you said the name of, uh, if you tried to say the name of your antagonist, you would somehow gain a mastery over them. Saying the name gave you power over them. So some people say the demons are sort of doing that sort of thing. I don't know that much about that. But I will say the most shocking thing to me in this interaction is the fact that this demon invokes the name of God in verse 7. You see what he says? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. That's an interesting move for a demon to make. I adjure you by God. Why in the world would a demon invoke God's name against the Son of God? As if God would somehow rush to the protection of the demon against his own son. The best answer I can come up with is it's just sort of sheer desperation. Because the demon is fully aware of who Jesus is. He is also fully aware of Jesus' power. And because Jesus is saying what he's saying in verse 8 all along, I adjure you, I adjure you uh, by God, do not torment me. Or that's what the demon is saying. But Jesus is saying, come out of him. Uh, because Jesus is telling the demon to come out of him, I think the demon sort of knows he's going to go. He must leave because one with more power and authority is here. And so in that desperation, this is how I take the demon invoking God's name. In his desperation, you know, there's nothing beneath the demon. And so even to try to blasphemously invoke God's name somehow in a moment of desperation, what he's trying to do. But of course that's useless. He's powerless. It doesn't matter what words he says, the name of God or the name of Jesus. There's nothing he can do in the face of Jesus. So verse 9 And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. So before there is the actual exorcism, the casting out of the demons, there's a conversation. Not a conversation between Jesus and the man, but a conversation with Jesus and the demons inhabiting the man. Jesus seems to know demons have names. We know angels have names in the Bible, a couple of them at least. But he asked the demon his name. And the answer the demon gives reveals a fully, fuller story of what has happened in this man. Verse 9, my name is Legion, for we are many. And so not one, but many unclean spirits are in this man. Um, maybe this explains the superhuman strength in verse 4, that it's not just one demon who inhabits him, but many. Um, if you look in, in the pronouns of the demons here, legion is both referred to as a he and a them. And so it seems there's sort of a particular demon who did the talking, but collectively as a unit they identify themselves as this, as this entity, legion. 
The desperate attempt to invoke God's name against the Son of God in verse 7 is not successful. And so in verse 10, what you have is begging. There's a lot of begging in the story. Legion begs Jesus not to send them out of the country. If you read Luke's account, it says, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. We'll uh, talk about that a little bit more later. But it seems like they, 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 weren't, they, they weren't afraid to be sent to just a different region, you know, like out of Galilee or something. They're afraid to be sent to a different realm that demons are afraid of. They're looking for our alternative to the abyss. And so verse 13, or rather verse 11 through verse 13. Now, there's a great herd of pigs, and a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Legion understands that he slash they are under the authority of Jesus. Demons always do what Jesus commands in the Gospels. And so finally, in the desperate begging, Legion asks, throws himself at the mercy of Jesus, Please send us into this herd of pigs over here. Jesus obliges. The spirits go out of the man, enter the herd of about 2,000 pigs, we're told, which causes the pigs to rush off a steep bank into the sea where they all drown. It serves as a visual demonstration of the man's healing, at least. Um, I don't know what you would normally see when a demon left a man. I don't know you could tell the exact moment when it happened. But in this case, the people who witnessed it certainly saw the demons go into these pigs and cause these pigs to do this extraordinary thing. And it helps everyone connect the dots. The demon has left, the demons have left the man and have entered the pigs. So, we come to the question why do the pigs beg Jesus? Why do the pigs, rather, the demons beg Jesus to go into the pigs and then proceed to cause the pigs to run off the side of a cliff as soon as they got their wish? Why does that happen? And while I'm at it, as I was reading and studying, I came up with a bunch more questions I'd like to have answered. Um, I'd like to know the answer to this. Why does Jesus oblige Legion's request? Why does it seem like Jesus sort of plays ball with the demons? You know, isn't that sort of like negotiating with terrorists? You know, if you give the demons what they want, what, what comes next? Under what circumstances will Jesus grant a demonic request? Because that is what happens here. Demons make a request and Jesus grants a request. Is Jesus showing the demons some sort of mercy? I'll also mention this. Uh, just, I, I, remembered, I remembered this as I was studying. I was a student in a Bible class once. Thankfully, I wasn't the teacher. I was a student. And someone was pretty bent out of shape about the injustice done to the owner of the herd of pigs. You know, did Jesus make him whole after his whole herd, after his livelihood? Is destroyed. They're really upset about the, the owner of the pigs. I don't know the answer to that. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. So here's what I'm going to do. Um, my approach to the question here is going to be sort of scattershot a bunch of observations and thoughts about the story. Quote a few people who've thought about this as well. I don't even have any points. I'm just going to start talking for a while, and maybe you'll get something out of it. So first of all, let's notice how interesting it is that the demons are negotiating with Jesus. Let's notice that. They make a request, and then Jesus obliges the request. 
Again, Luke's account records that the fate they are trying to avoid when they make their request of entering the pigs, this is what they're trying to avoid. Luke 8.31, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. As far as I can tell, that word, the abyss, refers to something like the abode of the dead. The place that you resign to upon death and perhaps also the place you resign to after judgment. But the mindset of legion is something like this. Anything is better than the abyss. And then there's this herd of pigs. And so he says, Jesus, send us there, the pigs, instead of there, the abyss. Now, the fact that they are begging, the fact that they are trying to negotiate is a sign of their respect for Jesus' power and authority. They, must know, they know they must go and do whatever Jesus says they must do. They have no hope of fighting against Jesus and resisting him. They know as soon as Jesus says a word, they will be at his mercy. So why does Jesus oblige, oblige them and cast them into the pigs? I don't know. Here is one idea. Here is sort of a hypothesis. Jesus' allowance of, of them entering the pigs perhaps says something about what time it is. The day has not yet come when he will deal with such forces of evil decisively once and for all. That day has not come, so there is some leeway. The main, uh, the main uh, goal of Jesus in this story is to relieve the man who has been possessed by these demons, to relieve the man of his burden. And the, the demons are given more leeway than they will be given one day. Now, next question. Why did the demons cause the pigs to run into the water and drown? Now, I tend to read it as the demons caused the pigs to destroy themselves in the same way that they were causing the man to destroy himself. I don't read it as it was sort of the pigs' volition to do it, but rather the demons caused them to do it. Um, again, the, answer, the real answer is I don't know. But let me just make sort of a big picture point about Satan and his demons. Wherever they go, wherever the demons go, we see it mainly in the Gospels, wherever they go, the demons are bent on destroying the creation of God, the good creation of God. That's what demons are up to. When they possessed the man, he was self-destructive to his own body. They sought to corrupt and destroy this man inside and out. And when Jesus would no longer allow them to do that to a man, and when he allowed them to enter the pigs, they destroyed the pigs. In the Gospels and in Acts, the unclean spirits we meet are out to destroy the work of God and out to destroy the creation of God. And that's the common thing of what the demons do in the man and in the pig. They destroy what God has made. I'll also point this out. It is interesting that pigs are the animal chosen here to be cast into. Uh, interesting because they're unclean animals. Really, they're sort of the consummate unclean animal. I'm not exactly sure what to make of that detail. Uh, Jesus is in a Gentile region, uh, the, the Gerasene region. Um, the owner of the pigs must have either been a Gentile or been a non-practicing Jew because a, a devout Jew would not have had a herd of pigs. Let me also bring up a cluster of questions the text really does not address at all. How can animals be possessed? How frequent was that? What happened to the demons after the pigs were drowned? Did they go inhabit some other creature? Why did the spirits feel, feel compelled to dwell somewhere rather than just being set free? Is that not an option? The options the demon ha says is either the abyss or the pigs. Why, does, why are those the options? Why cannot they just sort of roam around? 
Again, what about the owner of the pigs? Wasn't some injustice done to him? And what I have to say about these is the text is simply not at all interested in answering these questions. It just isn't. What is important to Jesus and what is important to the story is the man's welfare. The man who was possessed by these demons. His welfare is more important than anything else in the story, including the well-being of the pigs. And if you love pigs, I'm sorry, but the man's well-being was more important than the pigs. To quote one man, one must be content to treat the account at the level it is offered and not try to answer questions it does not address. And that's where I kind of come down a lot of that. Here is, here is kind of a, a, the big point, I think, and the thing we can take away, the thing we're supposed to take away from the story. Regardless of what we may or may not know, whatever we do or do not understand about demons and how they work, the biggest point of the story is that Jesus is more powerful than any demon or any army of them. They must do what Jesus says because he has authority over them and as soon as he tells them to do something, they cannot disobey. Or at least they're afraid to find out what would happen if they did. When Jesus says, be gone, they go, always. Jesus is in the driver's seat in every demon encounter we read in the Gospels. That's the big picture here. We're meant to see Jesus' power over the spiritual realm. There is no evil spiritual force Jesus cannot handle. Well, since we've gone this far, we might as well just read the last part of the story because it's not over yet. The aftermath beginning in verse 14 is, I think, um, almost as interesting as the story itself. Verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So the herdsmen who tended the pigs fled. They fled the scene and they reported to everyone in the area what had happened. Uh, they all came to see for themselves. They saw Jesus. They saw the man who had formerly been possessed. And there's a, really, there's a funny line in verse 15. So... You remember what he was like whenever he was possessed by the demons. He was a scary and fear-inducing man to come across. He's bursting through the chains. He's cutting himself. He's shrieking. That's a frightening thing. But Mark Riley remarks that he's just as scary now. Sitting there, verse 15, clothed in his right mind, and the reaction of everyone to this, they were afraid. They were afraid of him when he was possessed, and they were afraid of him when he had been dispossessed. His transformation back to normal frightens them. The point he's making, of course, that the the recovery is total. It's jarring to people how it is that this man has recovered to the extent that he has. As the story gets around about exactly what's happened, something interesting happens among the garrison people. They beg Jesus to leave their region. And I'm not totally sure why. I'm not even sure the garrisons could probably articulate exactly why they want Jesus to leave. But let me just say a couple of things. Remember, this is a predominantly Gentile region. 
and being confronted with a man of such power induced fear among them. It's a disruption to their normal life, and who knows what pagan beliefs and superstitions are running through their, through their minds about, about Jesus. I think I can say this. The pagans, when they, when they thought of God coming to visit them, it would not, was not a happy thought. It was often a scary one. The, the, the pagan gods were quite fickle and, and were, not, were not good as a rule. They kind of did what they wanted. And so they see a man, a god, this powerful, and they're all afraid. And I also can't help but contrast their reaction to Jesus' power when they say, God, Jesus, please leave us alone. That's their reaction. With the Jews on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, when they see Jesus' power, they're flocking to them, and it's really Jesus who's saying to them, leave me alone. And so when they see the power of Jesus, the garrisons see the power of Jesus, they say, Jesus, leave us alone. And when the Jews see the power of Jesus, it's Jesus who's telling the Jews, please leave me alone. Let me also point out, everyone in this story is begging. Begging is a huge part of this story. The demons beg Jesus about where to send them in verses 10 and 12. In verse 17, the garrisons beg Jesus to leave. In verse 18, the exercised man begs Jesus that he can go with him and travel with him. But Jesus does not permit the man to come with him. Instead, he commissions him to go and to be his evangelist to the garrisons, essentially. Go tell them what the Lord did for you. And we're told that's exactly what he began to do. So let me end with a, with a final <clears throat> quote here, which is, I think, a good summary of the significance of the story uh, in the life of Jesus and what we should take, take from it. This is from a, a commentary on the Gospel of Luke, uh, describing Luke's account of this story. A note of assurance also exists in that Jesus controls vast numbers of spiritual forces allied against him. The man is transformed despite the efforts of evil to overwhelm him. Jesus' authority comes through clearly. God is working through Jesus and is allied with him. Luke again shows us that Jesus can be trusted. Such is his power. Confronted with Jesus, some draw near and others want distance. For Luke, the preference is not found in the opinion of the multitudes, though, but in one radically transformed man. It's really the story of this man, the liberation of this man, the reaction of this man, that we get the proper reaction to Jesus, to be audited his power, to be liberated from evil and sin, and to say, I'm going to follow you, and if I can't follow you right now, I'll go out away from you preaching you wherever, wherever I go. And so it's a good story, and I'm sorry I don't have a better answer to the question, but as always, we just sort of take a crack at it and then say, uh, come again next month. So maybe there's someone here this evening that, uh, that needs to come and receive liberation Liberation from sin and evil. The power of Jesus is there. It's available. You can conquer any sin. You can forgive any sin. You can cast out any demon. Whatever it is, it can be conquered with Christ. If there's someone that needs to come and to get Jesus' help, come forward now as we stand and sing. Oh.
Afternoon.